Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my lovely betwixters. It's me, Kay Lister. I am here, as I always will be, with your fair dues warning. Here it is. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things in an adulty way, covering a range of adult subjects, and you should be an adult too. Whew. Well, I don't know about you, but I certainly feel less triggered after that. I hope you do too. On with the show. Twixters, it is a beautiful day here in medieval England. Just perfect for a jousting competition, wouldn't you say? Go and grab yourself a goblet of mead and let's start a mingling, because this is the place where you could meet a partner back in the day. Some 800 years before we were all on dating apps, swiping left and right. What a time to be alive. There's lots of men in armour clunking around, trying not to get knocked off their horses, getting into scrapes and trying to impress the onlooking, swooning damsels. To be fair, I have seen similar nights out in Leeds. Hang on, here they come, here they come. Well, holy fuckballs, they're not in any fit state to be out dating anytime soon, are they? Never mind, there are plenty more where they came from. On with the next. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. And welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. If you think dating is difficult now, spare a thought for anyone trying to find a hookup in the medieval period. When it came to having sex, views on pleasure were largely shaped by the church. I can't imagine that makes for some pretty scintillating pillow talk, but maybe there are others out there who disagree. But joining us today to explore this raunchy world is Catherine Harvey, author of Fires of Lust, Sex in the Middle Ages. How did medical views of the body shape their understanding of sex? How did medieval people conceive of STIs? And what did they think about people that sold sex? I am ready to delve into this one if you are, Betwixters. Hello, and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Catherine Harvey. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Are you, Kate? Well, I'm doing all right. I'm really... I asked that of all my guests, but we are recording sort of the day after Storm Isha and now Storm Jocelyn, and there's a whole crowd of storms coming our way. So really, when I'm asking people, are you all right? It's like, 
Had we survived? Are you We're all right? Here. Is your wheelie been okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's just madness, isn't it? I'm so glad that you are here and that you're talking to me today because your book, Fires of Lust, Sex in the Middle Ages, I absolutely adored that book. That was so much fun and it was so insightful and it was so well written. And the first question has got to be, what made you want to write about sex in the Middle Ages? It was sort of a mistake, actually, because I started out <laughs> working on medieval bishops who weren't supposed to have sex. And then I found this whole little clutch of stories about medieval bishops who died of not having sex because they saw sex very much in terms of sort of part of a healthy lifestyle. Oh. But as a form of excretion, so it sort of helps you get rid of superfluities in your body. And so oh. both too much and too little is bad because if you have too much sex... You lose too much of your bodily fluids, particularly if you're a man, and then you can die of that too. There are people who are supposed to die of too much sex, which sounds more fun, no. I suppose, than dying of too little. <laughs> but yeah, the, because the clergy by the later Middle Ages, they weren't allowed to have sex, and that was supposed to be clear they weren't allowed to masturbate or anything. So then they think that all everything sort of backs up in your body and ultimately can kill you. So yeah, that, that was where it started for me, bishops dying of celibacy. Wow. <laughs> That is one of the best origin stories for a book I think I've ever heard. It was bishops dying of not being able to have sex. Because <laughs> we forget that, don't we? Because we're so used to like the Catholic Church and priests and all those people being right. No, sex is absolutely off the table and off any other surface for that matter. But there was a point in medieval history where that was a rule that was brought in, isn't it? it that hasn't always been the case. No, it comes in in the 11th century, and up until that point, a lot of sort of the really important ones weren't supposed to be married, the monks weren't supposed to be married. But yeah, your ordinary parish priest would have had a wife, would have had a family. And then in the 11th century, for various reasons, they decide that's a bad idea. And a lot of priests, quite understandably, get quite upset about that. Mm. But yeah, Imagine then it being gradually in that meeting. the norm. Yeah, it must have been quite a meeting. There was one chat, one occasion, I think, in, I think it was Normandy, where the bishop turned up and all the parish priests threw things at him because they were so cross <laughs> about having been meant to put their wives aside. And the wives weren't very pleased either. <laughs> well, no, you wouldn't be. It's very rich for humour and I'm certainly laughing at it but like the reality of that must have been really surreal that you're a parish priest you've got your wife you're doing all your bishopy priesty stuff and then suddenly what a note comes through there's a meeting where it's like oh lads yeah sorry uh, this is all out now that must have been so surreal yeah I, th I think it was really hard for a lot of people and unsurprisingly I mean it takes them se several generations to really enforce it properly because people are quite yeah. resistant to the idea there's some areas where it's sort of better enforced than others. In Spain, right the way through the Middle Ages, we get cases of priests who basically have got common-law wives. Right. Even the odd monk. There's, there's one story in the book that particularly sticks in my mind of this monk who him and his long-term partner, she basically is, and they say, well, they, you know, that nowadays they sit in the kitchen reading together, which is quite sweet, really, I think. But yeah, That's really sweet. Other areas where they're far hotter on enforcing it. But, I mean, obviously there are always people who don't quite keep to the rules, and some who break it quite scandalously. There was one bishop from the Netherlands, I think, towards the end of the Middle Ages, who was supposed to have had 60 children. So, um, yeah. Oh, dear. That, that's quite outrageous flaunting of the rules, isn't it? But that is. So your background in part is the history of medicine, right? Yeah. And the medieval linking of sex and health and medicine and religion, they all cross over 
and they kind of move into one another in ways that seem very odd to us today. But when you're explaining that idea that if you have too much sex, you've released too much. I'm going to assume this is like a humoral thing. It's like, you know, that you've lost too many yeah, of your juices. Yeah. And then if you don't get enough out, that sex was considered a health issue in the Middle Ages. I mean, it still is sexual health, but in a different way. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, as you say, very much this idea of balance. They have got some idea that you can contract certain diseases by sex they get quite hung up on the idea if you catch leprosy for via sex because they think the sort of the bad vapors stay in the woman's womb and she'll infect the next man she has sex with can you catch leprosy is it like could you I was gonna say, i've never tried i don't really mean that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know oh. I, I think it is a disease you catch through very close physical contact so i suppose in theory sex could but i don't think it's one of the main vectors of it no but it's not a sexually transmitted disease not specifically. in that sense i don't think so no wow leprosy so they were really worried that what women were carriers of that they were quite worried about yeah prostitutes carrying it there's, there's one chap in but he goes off to university in 14th century france and he has sex with a prostitute and the next day he's got these sort of sores and he thinks, oh, God, he's caught leprosy from her. And that's, he swears off sex with women forever. Right. Then ends up before the Inquisition of having sex with men. So I don't quite know how he thought that worked. He, well, but... he went, went too far the other way there, then, yeah. didn't he, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, when people think about the Middle Ages in kind of popular culture, it still suffers from a lot of damage that the Victorians did to that particular era. And it was the Victorians that came up with the idea of chastity belts and damsels in castles and that the medieval period was very chaste. And I guess there was a lot of projection going on because that was really more of their own thing. But mm. the Middle Ages were a lot more raunchy than people give them credit for, weren't they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously there is this sort of dominant Catholic idea of sort of mm. sex belongs in marriage and virginity is great and, and chastity is the idea and all, and all the rest of it. But yeah, on the other hand, I think one thing that often surprises people is that they had this idea that sex was a really important part of marriage mm. and the marital debt, that, you know, you actually owe it to your partner to have sex with them. Now, that, of course, can cause all sorts of problems, particularly for women in terms of the fact there's no such thing as marital rape. Mm. But yeah, no, they do, I think, see sex as part of a healthy lifestyle see sex as part of a healthy marriage. It's very important to them, of course, because it produces children, which is, well, very important for any society, but I suppose that particularly in that sort of Christian mindset was it was very important to produce more little Christians. And, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the literature in particular, I mean, a lot of medieval literature is frankly filthy. And I, I don't think that really that's, is. Yeah, very, very oddly alongside this stereotype we've got of them. One of the, my favourite things that I teach medieval literature with students is that if you sat them down and you said what did Kate teach you they would remember nothing apart from this is when I showed them the erotic marginalia the little obscene drawings that turn yeah, up in medieval yeah. illuminated manuscripts like the tree full of penises and monkeys buggering each other and they just could not get their heads round that these were drawings in often very religious text and the thing that blew their mind was they're not like scrappy doodles somebody put a lot of time and effort into drawing this particular penis tree like what kind of culture or mindset was going on that kind of had these things in parallel with one another it's just a penis in a religious text it's fine yeah yeah and it's a bit like a lot of the sort of carvings in churches isn't it i, mean, I, was, yes. I was in norwich cathedral the other week looking at the carving on the ceiling there of noah with his um Trousers down. And he's like, what, what makes <laughs> you think? Let's build the decorations for our choir in the cathedral. Let's put naked Noah up on the ceiling. It, it's, you know, and the, the Sheila Negigs with their exposing their genitals. And 
Yeah, I'm not sure I've worked out what was going on in their minds. It, it, uh, to us, it, it just seems completely inappropriate. Nobody has. There's lots of different theories floating around, but it's a very odd juxtaposition to our modern mind. And when you talk about sex history, there's so much that fascinates me about it. But one of the things I'm really interested in is like everyday things like dating. Mm. Like today, dating, there's so much research going on about what dating apps have done to us as a culture because like dating is is now turned into a game and whereas for centuries thousands of years you were kind of limited to the people in your village around you now you have a pocket full of every single available person in the world but if you were a medieval person way before ye old tinder how would you have done that what would dating have been like in the middle ages yeah, so I mean, I think it probably depends who you are, because obviously, if you're very high up the social scale, you're probably going to have an arranged marriage. I mean, they're bigger on the idea of consent than we tend to think they are. The church is very keen on the right. idea of consent, and that you shouldn't be making forced marriages, and that you shouldn't be marrying children. So it does sometimes happen at very high levels that they have these arranged marriages with children. But that's definitely the anomaly. And even then, they mm. are quite keen on the idea they shouldn't have sex until they're properly old enough. Boundaries are important. Yeah, and I think we can, we can agree that was a good one. But yeah, I mean, if you're an ordinary person, you probably, you have got a bit more leeway. As you say, you're limited to who you physically can meet. Mm. But yeah, you know, people, they do, I think, value love more than, again, the stereotype maybe suggests that we think they do. Although mm. obviously there are lots of ideas in there about, you know, marrying somebody of a suitable social status and somebody your family will approve of and all that sort of thing. And yeah, I mean, how far sex before marriage was a thing I think it's quite hard to get a handle on because obviously yeah. the church was going, no, it mustn't be. And definitely you could end up in court for fornication, sex outside mm. marriage. And yet we do, once parish registers come in, in the 16th century, the rates of bridal pregnancy are, shall we say, very high, Ooh. which certainly is suggestive. Yeah, and the other thing that happens a lot in the Middle Ages is that although the church was very keen on the idea that, no, you must get married in church, you could get married just by making promises to each other and then having sex. And how do we often find out about those? Somebody then ends up in court when sort of, you know, six months later, usually the woman is going, he said he'd marry me, we had sex, now I'm pregnant and he's buggered off. Oh, my God. Yeah. I just realised that technically by medieval standards, I'm married to like four people. <laughs> Hell. <laughs> they definitely made promises and then they buggered off, Your Honour. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's weird, because like, how do you even prove that? Like, if you go to medieval court and you just like, yeah, he definitely said he would. Do you have, to have witnesses? Yeah, they do get witnesses. And yeah, you know, sometimes you get witnesses go, well, we saw them exchange promises. Okay. Um, occasionally you get somebody who goes, well, actually, I, you know, I saw them having sex through the, through the barn door or something. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's all quite awkward and, and embarrassing all round, it feels. Yeah. But the stakes are so much... Higher, aren't they? There's so much more stigma. I mean, even though the medieval society was freer and more permissive than we think they were, you, you've got to pull it back sometimes. Be like, well, it wasn't like mm, a cavorting mm. sexual utopia either. It wasn't like a feminist paradise by any means. And of course, birth control is, well, what there is is crap and doesn't work really. I suppose the most reliable one would be the withdrawal method, time honoured, but not very useful. If you get pregnant, you have a bit like the stakes are really high for this. Like, what are you going to do? And if you're a woman, it's very difficult if you're not loaded to earn your own money. So if some swine, some scallywag has said, yeah, I will definitely marry you and then got you pregnant and run off, that's a really bad thing. So I can understand why you'd drag him to court. 
Yeah, yeah, and sometimes then they make people get married, which I suppose solves the reputation problem but feels like it's probably setting you up for a life of misery. It does, doesn't it? Sometimes they have to, the chap has to give the woman a dowry so that she can, you know, somebody will then marry her. Oh. But, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of reputation, it is, yeah, problematic. And as you say, there's not a lot you can do because the contraception, other than the withdrawal method, it's there's a lot of stuff that sort of it's based on, again, humoral principles and it made sense to them, but I don't really mm. think the sort of hanging weasel testicles around your neck or swallowing a bee or, or all those sorts of things would have helped. No, limited, <laughs> don't, I think. Don't try those. Nobody try don't, those. Please, ones. just go and talk to your GP. <laughs> so what, you're getting letters from people who've swallowed bees? No, I, <laughs> I wore weasel testicles and my wife still got pregnant. Oh, the number of complaints we've had. One of the things <laughs> I'm interested in well is like this kind of spatial differences throughout time in a way that I often think that we it's easy to forget how different things would have been in that we have a lot of our own space today we might have your own room growing up you might have a quiet place to go to and that wouldn't have existed for many many people throughout history but like where would you go to meet somebody today on the medieval marriage market if you're a woman you can't just go down the pub I assume because that would have you'd have been a certain type of woman if you'd been doing that where would you go to meet people? What was like a good sociable event? Yeah, no, I mean, it is quite restricted, isn't it? I mean, I suppose, yes, there are sort of the, the church is important in both local communities, oh, and sort yeah, of, yeah. you know, social events. But yeah, I mean, you are very restricted and your parents probably are keeping an eye on you. And if you go off to do an apprenticeship, often there are clauses in apprenticeships that go, well, you know, your apprentice master is now responsible for your morals, basically, and mustn't oh. let you out to get up to anything. And you're not allowed to get married and you're so... Yeah, there are there are quite a lot of restrictions that would definitely limit things, I think. I mean, we're all the living, breathing, walking proof that people manage to get around those restrictions somehow. But mm. it's, it's just interesting, like, how would you do? Would you catch someone's eye? Would you be able to... I mean, people couldn't... Literacy rates weren't great, so you couldn't write them a note. Would you, like, send them a little present? In the Miller's Tale, Chaucer's Miller's Tale, we're told that Absalom, who really fancies the young Alison, he sends her cakes, kind of like a love token. I mean, is, I think that would work on me, but... Was there a sense of like <laughs> that you'd give people like little tokens or something just to let them know? I really fancy you. Yeah, I think that is quite an important part of medieval courtship. Yeah, the little presents. The problem the that would have been presents. quite a lot of that going on. Yeah. Little presents. We like little presents. I, we very much like little presents. They're still very much appreciated. So like one of the things we talk about a lot is like this sort of emphasis on you've got to get married, you've got to protect your virtue, or at least no one's got to find out that you can't have virtue. <laughs> it's been compromised, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but what if you're a woman who wanted to stay single? Because a lot of the time, you're looking at it, it's a real kind of shit show for women. I often think that, that your best deal was to get married, which is a bit like the wife of Bath, and then have him possibly die off and then you can inherit it and just be a rich widow. But what if you wanted to stay single and you didn't want to get married? Was there any space for that? Yeah, I mean, your choices are quite limited. Aren't they? I mean, I think sort of there probably always are more single women than people think. And some of them will work. That's sort of, you know, that's sort of the spinster thing comes from mm. it and all that sort of thing. But no, your options are quite limited. I mean, I suppose one option for some women would have been becoming a nun. But then, of course, yes. yeah, you bought into a sort of a whole lifestyle that maybe you didn't want just because you didn't want a husband. Yeah. You wanted to be a nun is quite a leap. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Was it Lucy of Bolingbroke who, after her husband died, paid to stay single? Yeah, there are sort of relatively well-to-do women who do. And, and there's, some of them, again, then take sort of vows of celibacy, whether they're really committed to celibacy. Some of them definitely are, but some of them you think, is this partly to sort of hold them in their campaign not to get married off again? 
But yeah, I mean, I think definitely to be to be a wealthy widow is probably your best bet, isn't it? I think so. I think yeah. so. In your research, we know it must have been happening because humans are humans. But what is the evidence for things like men having sex with men, women having sex with women, uh, what we now call like queer sex? Is that in the records that you've looked at? And what was the medieval attitude to same-sex relationships? Yeah, so I mean, from the church's point of view, well, it's definitely a sin. I mean, let's face it, the church's point of view, everything other than marital sex for the purposes of procreation is a sin. So, yeah, it's a sin. But I mean, did people still do it? Yes, of course they did. Inevitably, I suppose we know about it mainly from court records. Mm. There's far more about men having sex with men in the court records. There's one particularly good set from 14th, 15th century Florence where they actually get so het up about this that they set up a an institution called the Office of the Night, Ooh, which okay. yeah, it exists purely to find cases of men having sex with men. Wow. And they find them. They find thousands <laughs> of them. And yeah, apparently it got to the point where in, in Germany in the 15th century, men who had sex with other men were nicknamed Florences because the city became so strongly associated with it. Wow. I mean, it varies quite wildly from place to place and over time. And, and it, how many cases you're finding. And I think probably that's because sometimes, yeah, they have these sort of moral panics and they go, mm. right, we've got to find everybody who's in it. And sometimes it seems to be allowed more to fly under the radar. I mean, women, there are so, so few cases of women. And again, it's when they end up in courts. But I think there's about a dozen, I think, for the whole of the later Middle Ages. Clearly, there weren't only a dozen cases of women who had sex with other women in the, in the whole of the Middle Ages. I think we can fairly confidently no. say. And whether one thing that might have helped women to go under the radar was that they very much had this idea of sex in terms of something that one person did to the other mm. and in terms of penetration. And one of the odd things actually about cases where you do get women in court for having sex with other women is they're often very keen for one of them to be cast in the role of the man and right. she's seen as the guiltier party. It's all about the penis, isn't it? That's what we're back uh, it to. It seems to be. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I'm always fascinated by how differently women who have sex with women is treated than men who have sex with men. Because like, sometimes I think maybe they were just better at getting away with it than the men were, and that's why there's so few of them. But I think it's probably much more complex than that. And it's almost to do with this inability to conceive that what they're doing is what, the medieval mind, and not just the medieval period, but it still is enforced today, this odd narrative, that lesbianism is somehow not proper sex. It's very weird. Yeah, and I think you see that. You do see that right the way through history, don't you? And definitely in you the do. Middle Ages. Yeah. I mean, you know, like there weren't many advantages to being a woman, but I think that perhaps maybe that was something that the patriarchy, you know, that we got that small bonus is that we're probably not going to get executed for being lesbians because they just can't conceive of us having sex with each other at all. <laughs> I'll be back with Catherine after this short break. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. 
LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. I don't know about you, but one thing that bugs me is having to plan and cook healthy-ish delicious meals every single day. Frankly, I think it's time that could be better spent. You might be saying, hey, Kate, what's the solution? Well, luckily for you and me, Factor has made it super easy to eat quickly and deliciously. Their fresh, chef-created, dietitian approved meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. With over 35 meals to choose from each week, you can tailor your orders to fit your dietary needs and your schedule, even pausing and rescheduling deliveries if you need to. These are restaurant quality meals that require no prep, make no mess and are delivered right to your door. With Factor, you can take the stress out of healthy living. Head to factormeals.com slash betwixt50 and use the code betwixt50 to get 50% off. That's code betwixt50 at factormeals.com slash betwixt50 to get 50% off. Being part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families past and present from all over the world to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. From icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Do you think that the women have sex with women, men have sex with men? How was sex drive conceived of in the Middle Ages? One of the things that often surprises modern people is the idea that in the Middle Ages, it was women who were thought of as being more highly sexed than men, which makes it doubly strange that they didn't think they could be lesbians having sex. But okay, what was that about? Why were women thought of as being far lustier than men? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back again to religion and sort of the Eve and the original sin and all that sort of stuff. And so it's very much coming from there. But it also comes from this medical idea that sort of women are cold and they need men's heat. Oh, how do you get a man's heat? Well, by having sex with him. Um, so of that course. sounds like a terrible euphemism, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, religious and medical terms. Women are definitely seen as, as being the more lustful sex, which, again, doesn't sort of fit with our stereotypes, I think, and what we've since come to expect or been told to expect. 
I think the other thing that often surprises people is that they were far more interested in women's sexual pleasure than we think they might be. Oh, nice. Not because they were all great feminists. Oh. But because they thought, yeah, sadly, but because they had this idea, again, it goes back to medical theory, they had this idea that to conceive, both the man and the woman need to release seeds, so they both need to have an orgasm. Ah. So there's a surprising amount in medical texts about sort of foreplay and ways to um, increase a woman's sexual pleasure so that you'll conceive. Some of them are really bad ideas, like putting chilli on your genitals. I don't oh, think anybody no. should put chilli on their genitals. Yeah. How have, we, how have we managed to survive as a species is beyond me. Are there any good sex tips that you've found? That you're like, oh, actually, that, that's not a bad one. I have to say I can remember more of the bad ones. <laughs> yeah, they would stand out, wouldn't they? They would. Yeah. And it sets a low bar. Yeah, it does. Definitely this idea, though, that, yeah, women love sex, women are sex. But, again, there are lots of stories in medieval literature about women who are just obsessed with penises, mm. you know, run away with their husband's friends because he's got a bigger penis or something. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, def- definitely written by people with penises. Yeah, I can't, can't help thinking that must be true. <laughs> it's just the women just sat there just going, honestly, like, lads, we're not that fussed with them. <laughs> if you were about to launch yourself on the medieval dating marriage market whoever your your preferred person is man woman whoever what would you wear to be stylish how would you sort of dress to impress what would be a sexy look in the middle ages what would be the kind of look that you were going for I mean, I guess who it is, it depends who you are and when you are, doesn't it? Because if you're a medieval peasant, you've probably only got one set of clothes or maybe two. That's so true. you've got, got quite limited options here. You, you know, you're going in your smock, aren't yes. you? Yes. Oh. But there's a lot of stuff around the time of the Black Death when people start going, well, you know, the reason we've got this Black Death is because everybody's going around in really tightly fitted clothes. You know, the, the men are wearing tight hose and showing off their bumps and too many people are wearing pointy shoes and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. Makes if you've perfect got the money, sense. Dress yourself up. Yeah. They liked pale, didn't they? They were all about pale beauty standards in the Middle Ages. I like that one. For some reason, yeah. a shiny forehead. I've never quite worked that one out, what that is about why they like that. But No, I think the, the two that baffled me are that one and there was a medieval Spanish text I read once where it said, what you really want in a woman is sweaty armpits. What? Yeah. Oh, was that just one guy with an armpit kink who's made the mistake of thinking everybody thinks that this is the same? I why? don't know because I've never seen it anywhere else. So, may, yeah, maybe that's it. This was this, this one embarrassing moment. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen that. In fact, most of the records I've seen is like people trying to avoid body smells, which is another misconception we have about the Middle Ages is that they would have stunk. They would definitely have smelt worse than we do today, but smelling good was equally as important to them. Yeah, I mean, definitely, again, in medical texts, I've seen plenty of recipes for sort of things to deal with your sweaty armpits and, mm. and to make you smell nice. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe that was one weird chap. Just hadn't quite realised there that, like, everyone else, yeah, we're <laughs> Don't not... write that no. down. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same as them. What a way to find out that it's your, just your kink. <laughs> Even, like, the poor people <laughs> would be doing things like chewing mint and cloves to try and make their breath smell nicer. There would have been, like, sort of like local herbs and things to try and wash hair and try and keep clean. This was a group of people who did want to smell and look as nice as they possibly could. They weren't just, like, walking around covered in mud. No, definitely not. And I think that's one, another one of the big misconceptions, isn't it? And definitely, no, medieval cleanness is another one of my, my favourite topics. And, yeah, plenty of stuff about ordinary people washing. And, again, not just because they wanted to smell nice, they thought it was healthy to be clean. You know, mm. they knew it wasn't good for you to be walking around covered in mud. They didn't want to. So let's talk about one of my favourite subjects, sex for sale in the Middle Ages, because, again, 
with all of this stuff, there's such a state of cognitive dissonance going on. Like, on one hand, women are so much more highly lust than men, but we can't possibly conceive of them being lesbians. Sex is really important, but you can't have it. But it's only really important within these predetermined parameters. You can only have it in marriage and on certain days and blah, 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 blah. Medieval sex work seems to throw up a whole load of these contradictions because the church will get itself into a right old state because... On one hand, it views it as the expression of all the sinful things about sex that it does get itself very concerned with. But on the other hand, there's this strange idea that, like, well, I suppose it's necessary as well in some ways. What's been your research around people selling sex in the Middle Ages? Well, as you say, yeah, that it is very contradictory. I mean, broadly speaking, they sort of at the beginning of the period I look at in the book, in the sort of the 12th, 13th centuries, the thing is ban it. Mm. And then in the sort of the 14th century... A lot of towns start to decide, yeah, well, okay, we're never going to manage to get rid of this. Let's manage it. Yeah. And they start setting up official civic brothels and sort of official red light districts. And that has two benefits. One, they can regulate what's going on in there a bit. And there are cases where sort of women are protected from particularly abusive pimps or where men are prosecuted for, you know, beating up the sex workers or whatever. Also means, of course, they could benefit from the revenues, which they're quite keen mm. on. But, yeah, how that sits alongside a society which is going, sex work is a sin, these women need to be sort of saved. The church is quite big on setting up sort of houses to set essentially convents for repentant prostitutes. Yeah. And then, yeah, where are the cities with the most brothels? Oh, yeah, that'll be the ones where there's loads of clergy. Oh, my God. <laughs> there was a saying about Avignon that, you know, you couldn't walk across a bridge in Avignon without meeting so many prostitutes and so many donkeys because there's so many clergy there when the papacy's wow. there in the 14th century. And they were very closely associated with the medieval tradition of public bathing, when you would just go down and just have a bath with your mates. And they seem to have been very good places to meet clients or sort of shenanigans went on there. And what is that link about? Is it just because there's nudity, so there's sex? Yeah, I think so. And it does become a very strong link and something that, that people are very worried about. I mean, obviously there are baths. I think there probably are sort of more salubrious bathhouses where mm. that sort of thing, no, definitely isn't going on. And then places that definitely, shall we say, get a reputation. Mm. And then, yeah, people get very panicked about that. I read about one bathhouse in Avignon, I can't remember the exact date, but apparently it put out an announcement in like the local town crier, which was like, just to let people, it's definitely not a brothel. This is a nice bathhouse where people just come for baths. So it must have been like really concerning for people to be constantly trying to make that kind of distinction. We've lost a lot of the names of the people that were selling sex in the Middle Ages. What records do you turn to when you're trying to piece this history together? Because anything sex history is difficult to get to the actual voices themselves. What were the sources you were using when you were looking at people selling sex in the Middle Ages? Yeah, I mean, I suppose inevitably, again, a lot of it is court records. A lot of it is yeah. when people, you know, people get into trouble for things and they end up in court. And sometimes then you get really detailed accounts. There's one particularly good case from 15th century Germany where a brothel's investigated after one of the women who worked through is forced to have an abortion. Oh. And out of those records that, that you get sort of loads of testimonies from a lot of the women and sort of details of what life was like in that institution, that particular one, very unpleasant. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that they are a really good source. It'd be nice to have something that wasn't to do with law and people being punished, but that really is the best way in. It is, isn't it? That's the thing. And there's that, that amazing record that survived from the Southwark Jews. It pretended that it was from like the 12th century, but it wasn't. It was from like the 16th century. And it was a record of the body houses in the area of Southwark. And there were lots of rules and things that people could and couldn't do. And one of my favourites was like, they're not allowed to sell pies. 
<laughs> I've never really understood that. Why would it be that the brothel wasn't allowed to sell pies? The blowjobs, fine. Pies, no. I've never quite understood that one. Yeah, I don't know. Do they think they're sort of tempting honest people in who just want a pie and then they'll <gasps> get up to all sorts while they're in there? Maybe, maybe. that's I don't know. it. Maybe that's it. Maybe it was just the idea of like just get in and get out, like nothing to sort of keep you there any longer than you needed to be. Maybe they were just shit at making pies. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> oh, so sex work is an industry that's flourishing. It's always flourishing. It's very interesting that you said there that wherever there were a lot of clergy, there was a lot of sex work. Doesn't surprise me in the least. But if we're talking about the kind of sex that the medieval church could get on board with, marital sex to be having babies, all of that kind of stuff, did they give out advice on when to conceive or how not to conceive? Perhaps they'd probably be a bit quieter about that one. But what was their understanding of even how you could get pregnant. Yeah, I mean, trying to get to grips with medieval sex education is quite difficult. <laughs> there are sort of the odd sort of written texts that maybe we think people learn from, but a lot of it must have been oral and it's been lost. Mm. But yeah, I mean, definitely the church, yeah, obviously was mostly supposed to teach you about sexual sin and definitely that there's a lot of stuff about the clergy should be preaching about things and that confession's an important tool. But they are very worried about what goes on in the confessional. The priest must ask you questions, but he mustn't ask you two specific questions because he might give you ideas of things that you haven't thought of. Oh. And similarly, when you're confessing, you know, you shouldn't confess too much because don't put that in the priest's ears. <laughs> so they are very worried about people getting ideas from the confessional. That must have been the case, is that the church operated in this very, very strange way in that they are preaching about sexual sin to their congregations. But that must have been the first time that a lot of people even heard about this stuff. And in a weird way, the church has become <laughs> the primary source of learning about sexual sin, that people, they might not have even known about this stuff beforehand. Yeah, and I say definitely they are very worried about that, the idea that they might give you ideas or you might give them ideas and, and that you've got to be careful to avoid that. Yeah. Wow. I was recently reading... Angela's Ashes, which isn't medieval, but I do remember the narrator Frank McCourt saying that when he was a kid, he became obsessed with reading the Bible and everyone thought that it was amazing because he was this lovely little boy. Like, he's reading, it's so good. He's reading about the saints' lives. But he wanted to read about them because they're so gory and awful and horrible and like full of terrible, terrible things. That's fascinating. That There could have been churches full of people sat there going, oh, yeah, this is awful. Tell us more. Tell us more, priest. <laughs> So bizarre. So their yeah. conceptions of pregnancy is quite limited. I like the idea that you both have to have an orgasm, but that in itself is quite problematic. But the idea that sexual pleasure was important. How did they conceive of sexual disease? You've mentioned leprosy, which is bonkers. Mm. I didn't see that one coming. But what other diseases would they have been on the watch for? Because syphilis it hadn't quite arrived by the Middle Ages, had it? although that might be disputed, actually. Yes, broadly speaking, I left that out of the book on the assumption yeah. that, yeah, that crops up in the 1490s, but uh, not clearly before. Yeah, I think probably before that, they are mainly talking about things in terms of balance. Mm. And so you get somebody like John of Gaunt that was rumoured that when he died, his genitals were all horribly rotted. Oh, but I no. think somebody does link that to sex, but too much sex in terms of balance rather than has he got syphilis or something. Wow. So it does seem to be more in terms of too much, too little than in terms of disease. There are odd references to something that would seem to be what we'd now call gonorrhea. Okay. And I say that there is this awareness that you can catch things from sex, but BD isn't really the concern that it is now. It was more 
about too much or too little. Were they worried that women could have too much or too little sex? Or is this, were women also being discovered with horribly rotted genitals? <laughs> <laughs> I think that the concern with women actually is that if you don't have sex, you won't be releasing any seed. And then, then it will sort of, again, back up in your body and choke you and you'll get suffocation right. of the womb. Ah. And of course, what's the cure for that? We'll get married. Of course it is. Yes. They're far less worried, actually, in medical terms about women having too much sex because, again, because of this thing, you're cold and it's warming you up and generally that's good. I, right. I don't think I've ever found a case of a woman who's died of having too much sex. I can't think of any. Or, but yeah, too little sex, this idea that like you've got to get married and you've got to have sex and you've got to have babies, basically. I've definitely seen that mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. cropping up. But it seems to be... I'm, just, I'm going back to your bishops again. Why would they think that someone had died from not having enough sex what are the cases that they're referencing is there any clear case this actually happened or is this just kind of made up by a priest going look my mate dave he was a priest and he definitely died because he couldn't have sex yeah no i mean they, they crop up in sort of it's mainly 12th 13th century writings by priests so maybe they have got an agenda and i suppose what will happen is the sort of the good ones will be told i think thomas beckett was supposed to have been told that he would die if he didn't have sex but of course because he was thomas beckett he went on our chance then and we all know how he died. But, yeah, there are one or two who they say, well, once they were told that, well, then they did have sex. They tried to save themselves. And, yeah, mm. others where they go, no, the doctor told them that, and they didn't, and sure enough, they died. I mean, it definitely, it is seen as a serious medical problem. Whether people did exploit that for their own ends, we might suspect, but definitely it did work in terms of the medical theory. That's all the evidence that I need, quite frankly. Let's talk about nuns for a little bit, because I've always been struck by, I can't even remember who who said it to me, but it was at a conference ages ago, and we're drawing parallels between the brothel and the convent. They were run by women, women lived there. I was really struck by that, and I was like, God, that's, I suppose that's true in the medieval period. And we often forget that women were sent there because they'd misbehaved, and there was certainly a lot of concern in the Middle Ages about what nuns were getting up to, and there were some very naughty nuns out there. What has your research told you about naughty nuns and sex? So, I mean, as you say, I mean, there are plenty of naughty ones. There are plenty of stories about nuns who get pregnant, often by the priest who's coming into the convent because he's the only man who's around. Scallywags. Yeah, nuns who run away from their convents. I think somebody worked out that the figures for female misbehaviour are considerably lower than monks, oh. probably because nuns do tend to be more enclosed. And so there's less sort of opportunity, whereas a lot of monks are going out on the the town and getting up to trouble, nuns have fewer opportunities. Some of them didn't manage it. But definitely it was something they were concerned about, what all these women would get up to Mm. in convents. There has always been this taste for sort of salacious stories about nuns, definitely, and that was equally true in the Middle Ages. I mean, definitely, you know, anybody who's read Chaucer or you know any medieval literature knows that there are all these sort of terrible stories about naughty nuns probably, again, goes back to the idea that men are writing these things and probably tells us more yes. about male fantasy than reality, but there we go. Oh, Catherine, you have been wonderful to talk to today. Thank you so much. If people want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you? So I think the best starting place is obviously the book, The Fires of Lust, which should be available in all good bookshops. And yes, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and all the usual places. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I've had so much fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a good laugh.
Thank you for listening and thank you so much to Catherine for joining me. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and follow along wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you want us to explore a subject or maybe you've just quaffed a bit too much mead and you fancied saying how do you do, well then you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. We've got episodes on everything from the history of Karens to the real history of sex dolls all coming your way. This podcast was edited by Tom DeLaghi and produced by Stuart Beckwith. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com, code SUPER24. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.